Today I want to tell you about one of my favorite places, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, also known as the UP. So I'm going to start with a brief history lesson about how the UP came to be part of Michigan in the first place. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, the territory of Michigan and the state of Ohio had a disagreement. Now, mind you, this predates the modern Michigan State versus The Ohio State University. At this time, conflicting state and federal regulations led to both governments claiming ownership of a 468-square-mile strip of land along their border. The disputed land was known as the Toledo Strip, and it was desirable for a couple of reasons. First, because in the West, it was good farmland. And second, because in the east, it bordered on Lake Erie, and it included the mouth of the Maumee River, which made it a potential port for shipping, both through the Great Lakes and inland via the river. Now, the situation came to a head when Michigan petitioned for statehood in 1835, and they wanted to include the disputed territory within their boundaries. Now, just to show you that politics have been ridiculous for a very long time, in an attempt to force each other to give up, both sides passed legislation that imposed criminal penalties on residents in the Strip who submitted to the other side's authority. In what would become known as the Toledo War, both states deployed militias on opposite sides of the Maumee River near Toledo. But aside from some mutual taunting, in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. There was little interaction between the two forces. The only military confrontation of the quote-unquote war, known as the Battle of Phillips Corner, occurred when Michigan troops fired their muskets either at a group of Ohio surveyors or, as they claimed, into the air as the surveyors retreated. But Either way, there were no casualties as a result of this so-called battle. In fact, the only blood spilled during the whole Toledo War was the non-fatal stabbing of a law enforcement officer with a penknife. So, what does all this have to do with the UP, you ask? Well, in 1836, in order to end the hostilities, Congress proposed a compromise. Michigan would give up its claim to the Toledo Strip in exchange for statehood and the 16,377 square miles of the Upper Peninsula. Now, at the time, this was widely thought to be a bad deal for Michigan. Although the UP was a good place to harvest timber and trap for fur, a federal report described it as, quote, a sterile region on the shores of Lake Superior destined by soil and climate to remain forever a wilderness. And, in fact, voters in a statehood convention in September of 1836 soundly rejected the deal. But in December of that year, facing a financial crisis and pressure from Congress, another convention was held, known as the Frostbitten Convention, and the compromise was accepted, ending the Toledo War. Michigan gained statehood in January of 1837 and ultimately found out that the UP was much, much more valuable than they thought. Ohio can have Toledo. I'll take the UP anytime. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. The UP is the northernmost part of the state of Michigan and is almost completely surrounded by water of some sort. 
To the west, it borders Wisconsin. The state boundary follows the Montreal and Menominee rivers and an imaginary line connecting them. To the east, it's separated from the Canadian province of Ontario by the St. Mary's River. Lake Superior lies on its northern boundary, while Lake Michigan and Lake Huron make up most of its southern boundary. The Mackinac Bridge sits over the Straits of Mackinac, where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron meet, and that connects the UP to the rest of Michigan. At over 16,000 square miles, the UP makes up about 29% of the total land area of Michigan, but contains just 3% of Michigan's population, people who identify themselves as UPers. But 16,000 square miles of wilderness means that the UP is home to a variety of wildlife, including moose, wolves, coyotes, deer, foxes, bears, bobcats, eagles, hawks, and owls, all animals that I've talked about in previous episodes. Now, back in 1836, Michiganders may have thought that losing the Toledo Strip and gaining the UP was a bad deal. I mean, after all, life in 1836 wasn't easy under the best of circumstances. And thanks to the surrounding waters and northern latitude, the UP receives more snow, an average of two to 300 inches a year, than most of the eastern United States. Not to mention that the heavily forested land, soil types, short growing season, and logistical factors like a lack of infrastructure and longer distance to market meant back then, and still mean today, that the Upper Peninsula is poorly suited for agriculture. But what they didn't count on in 1836 was the geology of the area. It turns out that the Upper Peninsula is rich in mineral deposits, including iron, copper, nickel, and silver. Even small amounts of gold have been mined from the UP. In the mid to late 1800s, mining dominated the economy, and many isolated mining company towns sprung up. During the mining heyday, the population of the UP accounted for 11% of Michigan's total population. For many years, mines in the Keweenaw Peninsula, which is basically the upper peninsula of the upper peninsula, were the world's largest producers of copper. In fact, this area of the UP is known as copper country. But the mining industry began declining as early as 1913, and most mines closed at least temporarily during the Great Depression. Mines reopened during World War II, but almost all of them closed again shortly after the war ended. The last copper mine in the Keweenaw Peninsula, the White Pine Mine, closed in 1995. Now there's just a single copper mine still operating in Marquette County. Marquette County actually has one nickel mine and one iron mine still in operation. The Marquette Iron Range, a deposit of iron ore in Marquette County, has been mined continuously since 1847. At the ore docks in Marquette, you can see train cars full of taconite pellets, which are marble-sized pieces of unprocessed iron ore, being loaded onto freighters in Lake Superior, and taconite pellets litter the ground along the railroad lines. Now, I don't know about you, but I find a lot of the history and mining heritage of this region to be fascinating. Cities used budget surpluses to build opulent theaters, and wealthy mine managers built mansions which still line the streets of former mining towns. But when the mines started shutting down, this region lost its major economic base. The population declined sharply as miners, shop owners, and anyone else supported by the mining industry left the area, leaving many small ghost towns along the mineral range. But in addition to economic impacts, both good and bad, mining has a significant environmental impact, and the impacts of the UP's mining boom is still being felt today. 
Mine rock processing operations left fields of what's known as stamp sand. Stamp sand is a coarse sand left over from the processing of ore. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, a lot of mining operations used stamp mills to process ore-bearing rock. The rock was brought to a stamp mill where it was crushed, and after crushing, the material was either mechanically separated to extract metals or chemically treated using acids to leach the metal out. Stamp sand is a black or dark gray and can contain hazardous concentrations of trace metals. Some of these stamp sand fields grew so big they became hazards to navigation in the Keweenaw Waterway, a part natural, part artificial waterway that cuts across the Keweenaw Peninsula. Most of these sterile sands are now Superfund sites which are slowly being rehabilitated and the process of chemical leaching leaves behind tailings that can pollute water sources or leave pools of polluted water that can be a serious health hazard for both humans and wildlife. In addition to the direct impact of mining itself, mines and mine towns required a lot of wood. It was used for supports in the mine tunnels, for houses and other buildings, and for steam power generation. Virtually every part of the Copper Country region was cleared of timber to the extent that only a few small areas of old growth forest remain today. Previously cleared lands have been left to regrow and are now harvested on a limited basis by timber and paper companies. But talking about the UP wouldn't be complete without talking about Lake Superior. Okay, first let's look at the numbers. 350 miles long at its longest and 160 miles wide at its widest, it has a surface area of 31,700 square miles, roughly the size of South Carolina or Austria. Lake Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes, the largest freshwater lake in the world by surface area, and third largest in the world by volume. It contains 10% of the world's fresh surface water. Random fun fact, the amount of water in Lake Superior could cover the land masses of both North and South America with a foot of water. That's a lot of water. The average depth of the lake is 483 feet, and its maximum depth is over 1,300 feet. In fact, the deepest spot in Lake Superior is over 700 feet below sea level, making it the second lowest spot in the continental interior of the United States and the third lowest spot in the interior of the North American continent. The surface temperature of the lake varies seasonally, but never gets much warmer than about 55 degrees, not exactly tropical. Below 660 feet, the temperature is almost constantly 39 degrees. Now, twice a year in the spring and the fall, the lake waters mix and the lake is a uniform 39 degrees from top to bottom. There's a line from the late Gordon Lightfoot's ballad, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, where he sings, The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead. This is a reference to the fact that the bodies of victims of shipwrecks or other accidents in the lake are rarely found. Under normal circumstances, bacteria working to decompose a body create gases which cause the body to float. But the water of Lake Superior is so cold that it inhibits these bacteria and bodies rarely rise to the surface. Lake Superior's size helps moderate the climate of the Upper Peninsula. The water surface's slow reaction to temperature change helps moderate the air temperature. Summers tend to be cooler and breezes blow from the lake toward the land. 
Average summer highs are in the high 70s Fahrenheit, about 57 degrees Celsius for Christine in New Zealand. Winters are subject to lake effect snow, like I mentioned earlier, up to 300 inches in places over the course of the season, but somewhat milder temperatures. Average winter temperatures are in the high 20s Fahrenheit, or 10 to 11 degrees Celsius. The hills and mountains that border the lake hold moisture and fog, especially in the fall. Storms moving over the lake can create waves that are over 20 feet tall, and waves over 30 feet tall, while rare, have been recorded. About once every 10 years or so, the lake freezes over completely in the winter. There are over 80 species of fish that are native to Lake Superior, and many others that have been accidentally or intentionally introduced. Its relatively small watershed compared to its size, underdeveloped soils, low human population, and lack of agriculture in its watershed mean that Lake Superior has fewer dissolved nutrients relative to its volume than the other Great Lakes, making it less productive in terms of fish population. Maybe the most notable invasive species that's been introduced into Lake Superior is the sea lamprey. Sea lampreys look like something out of a horror movie. They have an eel-like body and a mouth that's jawless, round, and sucker-like, as wide or wider than their head, and filled with sharp teeth arranged in several concentric circular rows. Adults can grow to be nearly four feet long. The native habitat of the sea lamprey is the northern and western Atlantic Ocean, along the shores of Europe and North America, and the western Mediterranean and the Black Sea. They were able to infiltrate the Great Lakes through locks and shipping canals, starting with Lake Ontario in 1835 and reaching Lake Superior by 1946. Like trout or salmon, sea lampreys migrate up rivers to spawn. Females deposit a large number of eggs in nests made by the males in the substrate of streams with moderately strong currents. Also like salmon, after spawning, the adults die. After hatching, larvae burrow into the sand and silt at the bottom of quiet water downstream from the spawning areas and filter feed on plankton or detrius. After several years, the larvae undergo metamorphosis and migrate to the sea or to the lake and start the adult method of feeding. The adult method of feeding is where those horror movie rows of sharp teeth come in. Adult lampreys are parasitic hematophages, meaning they attach to a host and they feed on blood. A lamprey uses its suction cup-like mouth to attach itself to the skin of a fish and then rasps away the tissue with its sharp probing tongue and keratinized teeth. A fluid produced in the lamprey's mouth prevents the victim's blood from clotting. Hosts will typically die from excessive blood loss or infection. After feeding like this for about a year, lampreys return to the river to spawn and die. Control efforts in Lake Superior are carried out by the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, a cooperative effort between Fisheries and Oceans Canada and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and includes stunning and catching them with electrical currents, physical barriers that prevent them from accessing spawning streams, and lampricides, which are chemicals that specifically target the lamprey larvae. Now, these measures have met with varied success, and research into more effective control methods is ongoing. Interestingly, lampreys are considered a delicacy in some parts of Europe and are served pickled in Finland. Now, if you include the islands in the lake, Lake Superior boasts over 2,700 miles of shoreline. The largest island in the lake is Isle Royale, 
Isle Royale is part of Isle Royale National Park, which also encompasses more than 400 smaller islands in the vicinity. Isle Royale itself is significantly closer to Canada, just 15 miles from Thunder Bay, Ontario, than it is from the U.S. The UP is 56 miles to the south. The island is 45 miles long and 9 miles wide, an area of over 200 square miles. It's the second largest island in the Great Lakes, third largest in the contiguous United States, and fourth largest lake island in the world. But what really makes Isle Royale special is the wolf and moose populations that provide valuable data for scientists studying predator-prey relationships in a closed environment. Because of its remote location, the island is home to just a third of the mainland mammal species and is unique because it's the only place known where wolves and moose coexist without bears. Somewhat unsurprisingly, there's a cyclical relationship between these two animals. As the moose population increases, so does the wolf population. Eventually, the wolves kill too many moose, which results in some of them starving and their reproductive rates declining to match the availability of prey. Now, historically, neither moose nor wolves are native to Isle Royale. Just before becoming a national park in 1940, the large mammals on Isle Royale were the Canada lynx and woodland caribou, two other species of animal that I've talked about in previous episodes. Archaeological evidence indicates both of these species were present on Isle Royale for 3,500 years before being extirpated mostly because of humans, through hunting, trapping, mining, and logging, not to mention fires and competition for resources and possibly diseases from introduced invasive species. The last caribou on Isle Royale was documented in 1925. Lynxes were gone by the 1930s, although some occasionally cross from neighboring Ontario when the lake freezes. The most recent lynx sighting was in 1980. Even though a viable population of lynx is no longer present on the island, their primary prey, snowshoe hares, still are. Before the appearance of wolves in the 1950s, which also crossed to the island when the lake was frozen, coyotes were also present. Coyotes first appeared around 1905 and disappeared shortly after the wolves arrived. And if you've listened to previous episodes, you shouldn't be surprised by that because you know that wolves suppress coyotes. Now, it's thought that moose came to the island sometime between 1905 and 1912. And for a long time, it was assumed that a small herd of moose either crossed the ice or swam to the island. Now, mind you, until recently, nobody thought too hard about those assumptions, or they might have questioned why there was a herd of moose, since, you know, moose are solitary and they don't travel in herds. Although there hasn't been a thorough scientific investigation to determine how moose arrived on Isle Royale, both genetic and cultural evidence indicates that they were probably introduced by humans to create a private hunting reserve in the early 1900s. Genetic analysis shows that the Isle Royale moose are more closely related to moose from the far northwestern Minnesota-Manitoba border than they are to the mainland adjacent to Isle Royale, which suggests that they were trapped in northwestern Minnesota and transported to the island. Furthermore, the Washington Harbor Club, which was a group of wealthy businessmen, owned various buildings on Isle Royale in addition to railroads that ran from the city of Baudette in north-central Minnesota to the town of Two Harbors, Minnesota on the shores of Lake Superior. 
So they had the means to transport moose from northwestern Minnesota to two harbors and then, assumedly, to Isle Royale. Now, normally there's around 25 wolves and a thousand moose on the island, but like I mentioned, wolves and moose have a cyclical relationship, and the numbers can vary widely from year to year. For example, in the winter of 2006 to 2007, a survey counted 385 moose and 21 wolves. In the spring of 2008, there were 23 wolves and 650 moose. But here's the thing. The wolves of Isle Royale depend on new wolves crossing the ice to replenish the gene pool, and a reduction in winter ice pack meant no new wolves coming in, which led to genetic inbreeding. By 2016, there were only two wolves left on the island, and they were father and daughter, and by 2017, there was just the single female remaining. Meanwhile, in the absence of wolves, the moose population ballooned to 1,600. In December of 2016, the National Park Service proposed a plan to bring additional wolves to the island in order to prevent the pack from disappearing completely. Now, there was some debate as to whether this was an unnatural intervention, since wolves were not historically native to the island. But in September of 2018, four wolves were relocated from Minnesota to Isle Royale. And in 2019, another 19 wolves from various locations in Minnesota, Michigan, and Ontario were released on the island. In February of 2022, it was estimated that there were 28 wolves on Isle Royale and just over 1,300 moose. And that, my friends, is where we'll end this episode. Someday, I hope to become a youper and make the UP the permanent home of Dispatch's world headquarters. Now, you should absolutely go visit the UP if you get a chance, but I think I'm required by youper law to advise you not to think about moving there because you'll hate it. Thanks for listening. Remember to click on those buttons that say like and follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Leave a comment too if you feel so motivated. I promise it's free. Some other ways you can support the podcast. Tell someone else to listen too. Here's a few suggestions. The bus driver, your bank teller, your grandma, the checkout lady at the grocery store, or hey, random strangers, why not? Check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at just $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool merchandise. You can find all the pertinent information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and also how you can contact me if you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode. Check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest and get some dispatches from the forest merchandise. There's all kinds of stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English can...